Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. If I were to run for office, I've got a couple things that would be in my platform. One is, is I would get rid of time changes. That would be, uh, I would, I would, time changes would be over. Um, but my other part of my platform would be that, that all candidates must remove their campaign signs within 24 hours after winning or losing a race or be severely punished. And I mean like lashings. I mean like not a penalty, like, like, like physical punishment. I mean, we still have Trump and Pence signs that are still sitting around. I, I mean, I get it, you like Trump, but he and Pence don't even get along anymore. And so if, like, you've got a Trump-Pence sign, I mean, you at least need to mark out Pence or something. I mean, at least, at least something. I'm not sure what you think about when you think about elections and politics, but one of the things that always comes to mind is the idea of broken promises. Now, I'll be honest, depending on who wins, sometimes I'd really like for them to break their promises, but... But it is a guarantee that candidates make big promises to get them elected, but then in the process of governing, they can't quite seem to make those promises come true. Here are some of the whoppers that have defined our politics over the last 100 years. In 1916, Woodrow Wilson ran for re-election on the slogan, he kept us out of war. But just 29 days after he was sworn in for the second term, Wilson asked a joint session of Congress for a declaration of war against Germany, citing Germany's broken promise to suspend unrestricted U-boat warfare and an attempt by Germany to talk Mexico into joining an alliance against uh, the U.S. Congress granted that request just two days later, and so he didn't keep us out of war. In 1928, Herbert Hoover campaigned. uh, He promised that there'd be prosperity for everyone. 1928, so keep in mind the date here, promised prosperity for everyone, a chicken in every pot, a car in every backyard to boot. Less than eight months after Hoover took office, the bottom fell out of the stock market, plunging the country into what became known as the Great Depression. In his acceptance speech at the 1988 Republican Convention in New Orleans, Vice President George Bush told the crowd, read my lips, no new taxes. The Bush administration found itself plagued by a persistent recession while the federal deficit increased. After months of trying and failing to hammer out a deal with Congress for steep spending cuts, Bush admitted on June 27, 1990, that increases in tax revenue would be necessary. Bush would sign tax increases into law that November and would not win re-election. The list goes on and on. Uh, The list of broken promises made by those who run for office is extensive. Nobody, including voters, likes to have their trust betrayed and to have promises broken. Thankfully, there's somebody who always keeps his word. We mentioned last week that this section in the book of Joshua is a little tedious. It involves a lot of geography that we can't really conceptualize And it's easy for us to toss out these chapters in the book of Joshua and say, these don't really matter because this is just a verbal description of a a map. But I do believe that these chapters, as tedious as they are, do teach us something about God's character. We believe this. God is meticulous. He cares about the details. The outworking of God's plan, it's not happenstance or coincidence. You folks who are detail-oriented, 
you can appreciate the fact that we serve a God who is meticulous in his details. If you're a big, kind of a big picture kind of person, you don't worry about the details as much, then it's easy to get lost in these chapters that contain so much detail. However, we get to the end of these difficult chapters and we get to one of the most significant lessons here in the book of Joshua. If you've got your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 21, we'll read together here Joshua 21 beginning in verse 43. I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words. Joshua 21 beginning in verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all of their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all of their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness to your word. I thank you for keeping your promises. I thank you, God, that we can always depend on you. I pray that as we reflect on the significance of these words today, that you might speak to each of us today. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you can be seated. I really love how this section comes to a close. It, it honestly, I don't know, I love the, the, the original Lion King movie, the animated version, not the weird creepy version where they tried to make the animals look real. But I remember the scene in Lion King where Mufasa takes Simba up to the, up to the mountain and he looks out over the, the, the vast kingdom there and he says, he says to Simba, Simba, everywhere that the sun touches is your kingdom. All of this land is yours. And, and this honestly reminds me of that, the expanse of the kingdom. You have this this promise that is, that is hovering thick over the book of Joshua, this covenant that was made with Abraham, and all of that promise had now come to fruition. And this isn't, though, about Israel, though, as much as it is just a picture of God's faithfulness. So again, what do these verses have to teach us about God and his promises? I think the first thing that these verses teach us is that God's promises are timeless, God's promises are timeless. With the close of chapter 21, we've seen something dramatic take place. But in order to understand the magnitude of what's taken place, we do have to backtrack a bit. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God made a very specific promise to one man. He said, the Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and, to your, fa and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. The only problem is that Abraham <coughs> and his immediate descendants had a very difficult time with various parts of this promise. You see, Abram was really too old to have kids, but God was faithful and gave him a son. They named him Isaac. Abram never really possessed any land. He was a nomad and never quite found a permanent place to stay. And so it looked like Abraham was gonna have a very difficult time seeing God's promises fulfilled. Likewise, Isaac only had two sons. Their names were Jacob and Esau. And thus far, we can count that Abraham has exactly three descendants, four if you count the illegitimate son he had with, uh, with his household servant, if you count Ishmael. And Abram doesn't really possess any land. Instead, he shares it with other residents. Jacob finally begins to change the pattern, and he has a full quiver of sons, 12 to be precise. So Jacob, if you want to follow him, no? Okay. Thought I'd ask. 
So Jacob has 12 sons. He actually takes steps to, to begin to see God's promises satisfied, but Jacob actually takes steps away from the land rather than toward possessing the land. He ends up moving his very large family to Egypt to escape famine. And it's in Egypt that Abraham's descendants grow into a great nation, but they are enslaved and they have no home. So now, in Joshua, <clears throat> we're finally seeing the fulfillment of this promise that was made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. It's a promise that was nearly 600 years in the making, and it's all come true. God kept his end of the bargain. And here's the thing, it was not contingent upon time or generations. He made the promise to Abraham, but, but 600 years had passed for God to satisfy his promise, and it has finally come true. Joshua 21, verse 43, is a reminder of this great truth, <clears throat> and it has ramifications for us today. We, today, live in a time that is far separated from the times that we read about in the Bible, from when, whether it was Joshua or even as our Savior, when he walked the earth. You think about what's changed in this time. Technology has advanced. Our understanding of the world has changed. We're so enlightened today with all kinds of, of understanding. We, we know how things work today. Western nations like our own, we're moving away from the Lord. We're moving in a, in a, in a very secular direction. We live in a day-to-day -day where we see constant attacks on biblical morality. We see our own Congress and Senate passing laws that, that go against biblical morality. I don't know, more and more, it almost feels like Elijah when he lamented during his standoff with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 22. He said, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. It's like we're outnumbered. It's like we can't get ahead. But we need to understand this. God's promises are not affected by the clock or the calendar. There's a clock ticking in the mind of God, but we're not privy to that information. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. There's no doubt things have changed from the day that God spoke to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans to that day when Joshua stood in front of Israel at Shiloh and said, God has kept his promise, 600 years had passed, and that's a really long time. I mean, we don't even have a concept of this kind of time. We could see the rise and fall of entire civilizations in 200 years. The Civil War was fought in our country just 160 years ago, and that seems like ancient history to us today. But we need to recognize that God is not keeping track of our calendar in the same way that we are. He didn't look at Joshua at Shiloh and say, finally, I've been waiting 600 years for you guys to get this right. For God, that time was, was not measured the same way that ours does. God doesn't operate in time the same way that we do. We may be separated by a great length of time from these events that transpire in the Bible, but we recognize today that we are still waiting on God to satisfy some outstanding promises. God is waiting for the fullness of his time for him to keep all the promises that he has made. Why did it take 600 years 
for God to keep his promise to Abraham. Because he told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, it would take a little, that it would take more than a little while for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It was in God's good timing that he brought Joshua into the scene to conquer the promised land. It was all in God's good timing. But just because there's distance between us and the Bible, it doesn't mean that God is failing on the job or that we're beyond his ability to keep his word. Because today, we're waiting on God's good timing to bring things to a close. We're waiting on God's good timing to, to keep his promise. Many people see Advent as a celebration, as a, as a preparation for, for Christmas. But I would argue that the celebration of Advent is not so much as about preparation for Christmas, but the celebration of Advent is to remind us once again about the promises that God has made that we've yet to see satisfied. Because there will come a day that Christ will return, and not in the form of a helpless baby, but in the form of a mighty king. God has kept all of his promises, and he will continue to keep his word until all of his promises are satisfied. We also understand that God's promises are, are trustworthy. God told Joshua back in the first chapter of the book that he would possess the land everywhere that his foot stepped. Well, guess what? He does. Go back and read the survey that's presented to us in the preceding chapters. It's extensive. It covers every square inch of the land of Canaan. If God says it, you can count on it. You can take it to the bank. The writer tells us that Israel had rest on every side and that none of their enemies could stand against them. This is so absolutely critical. It reflects what God did. It reflects that God kept his word. But it does not reflect what Israel did. It's important that we notice the difference here. Israel did not do everything that they were supposed to do. Israel did not kick out everybody as they were instructed. In Joshua 15, we learn that Judah was not able to clear the Canaanites from Jerusalem. Joshua 16, we learn that Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. In Joshua 17, we learn that the tribe of Manasseh did not drive out the Canaanites. So many of the tribes of Israel failed in doing what they were supposed to do. In his commentary on these failures, John Calvin said this. He said, had they exerted themselves to the full measure of their strength and failed of success, the dishonor would have fallen on God himself who had promised that he would continue with them as their leader until he should give them full and free possession of the land. Therefore, it was owing entirely to their own sluggishness that they did not make themselves masters of the city of Jerusalem. Their own torpor, their neglect of the divine command from a love of ease, these were the real obstacles. You see, God was willing to do what God said, but the people we're not. Apparently, these tribes believed that they could control the influence of the Canaanites. We don't have to get very far into the book of Judges before we realize that Israel could not control the influence of the Canaanites. And I think the warning here is that some of us like to treat sin the same way, that we can somehow control its influence in our lives, that we can manage it, that, that as long as it's under control, we can, we can have it there. We can deal with it. 
But that's not the reality at all. Because what God wants, just like God wanted to give Judah conquest over the Canaanites in the territory that they were allocated, God wants to give us victory over sin and its effects. But the truth is, we're just fooling ourselves and we're numbing our conscience to sin's effects. God always keeps his end of the deal. It's never God who causes his promises to fail. It's always us. God wasn't dishonest to Abraham when he promised him an heir. It was Abraham who doubted God and tried to force God's promise through Hagar, their servant. And that gave us Ishmael. So how do we know today that God keeps his promises? Well, we know through Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. In Christ, we see God keeping his promise from Genesis chapter three, in which he promises to put hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In Christ, we, we see God keeping his promises to Abraham to make him a great nation and to be a blessing to the nations. In Christ, we see God keeping his promises to that a, a descendant of David would always sit on the throne. In Christ, we see God keeping his promise to the people that was made through the prophets. Again, the list could go on and on. The point is that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all that the Old Testament points to. This means for us <clears throat> that the Old Testament is not a book of stories, but a book of truth written to point us to Jesus Christ. Paul said in Romans chapter 15, verse four, for whatever is written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Some of us do not fully grasp this because we don't understand or don't believe that God's word is reliable and trustworthy. We're living in a generation where the Bible is less and less seen as, a, as, a, as, a, as an authority and more and more seen as just a collection of stories or fables or myths. Many even in the church today live their lives as if the Bible is a, is a book of options rather than God's commands to us. But the Bible, God's word, contains the very words of life. David said in Psalm 119, verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth. He prays in verse 43 of that same Psalm, never take the word of truth from my mouth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, that God's word is truth. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. God's promises are trustworthy. You can depend on God's promises because you can depend on him. It may not mean that you always get the things your way that, or the things that you want the way that you want them, but at the end of the day, when everything is said and done, God is faithful, just as he always has been. The last thing that 
we see from the word of God here, these promises about God's word, is that God's promises are thorough. God's promises are thorough. This chapter ends with a summary statement. None of the good promises that the Lord had made the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. You see, when God makes a promise, he keeps his side of the contract. There were no doubt some who doubted. Certainly, those tribes that believed that they were too weak to remove the Canaanites probably blamed God for their inability. They should have gotten a pep talk from Caleb, that 85-year-old guy who, who told them that he could do whatever God said he needed to do. Caleb could have, could have jazzed him up a little bit. Here's the thing, God doesn't do things halfway. He promised Abraham the land. He promised Joshua the land. And he doesn't pat Joshua on the back and say, go get him, tiger, I'll be rooting, from you, rooting for you from the sidelines. No, if you remember back in chapter one, verse five, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or forsake you. God doesn't set things in motion and hope everything pans out right. That's called deism, it's not biblical. God has promised salvation to all who would call on the name of the Lord. What's required for salvation? Repentance and faith. Anything else required? Do we need anything else? Nope. God took care of it. He covered all the details because when God makes a promise, his promises are thorough. He didn't make the way for salvation, allowing Jesus to die on the cross, demonstrating his power of, over Satan's sin and death, only to say, oh, oh no, I forgot. In order to be saved, you gotta do these things. You gotta follow this right. You gotta read a certain translation of the Bible. You gotta speak in tongues. You gotta worship on a particular day. You gotta wear certain clothes to church. That's not what he said. In order to be saved, you have to have repentance and faith. There's a lot of people today who believe that being saved is not only a work of God on the hearts of men, but it's also outward conformity with some sort of extra biblical standards. God doesn't make his promises to us for us to fix them or to try to explain them to mean something that they do not mean. God is thorough, his word is perfect, and no matter what your circumstances are, you can trust in Christ. You know, some of us today, we may find that we doubt God's promises. Maybe you're here and you wonder if God's actually able to save you. You've begun to question, does God actually love me? Even in this Advent season, you begin to wonder, has God forgotten about us? I mean, look around. Is it not time to clean this mess up? I mean, Lord, is it not? Why are you tearing? Look around at the evil, the wickedness, the iniquity, Lord. Is it not time, Lord? We long with the Apostle John. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Maybe you're here today. You're struggling with the authority of God's word. Maybe your experience with God's people have caused you to wonder about God's promises. But today you need to be reminded of this. God's promises are timeless. God's promises are trustworthy. 
and God's promises are thorough. But you've got to realize this, that God's promises are satisfied in Jesus. Don't expect an abundant life that was promised to us outside of Jesus. Don't expect salvation, which is promised to all who believe, outside of Jesus. Don't expect those things to be true because all of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. Some of you here today may be absolutely afraid to trust Jesus because you don't know if he's trustworthy or not. But my challenge to you today is to trust him, to believe in him, and prove him to be unfaithful to you. Because here's the thing, you won't ever find him to be unfaithful. You can try all day long, you can try your hardest, and God will never be unfaithful to you. Now, God's people will mess up. The church, oh absolutely, we'll mess up. But don't ever evaluate the Savior on the basis of his sinful followers. Because the, the, true, the, the true thing that makes, makes this greatest is the Savior, not the church, not his people, not the pastors, not the teachers. It's Jesus. All of God's promises are yes in Christ, not in the church, not in his people, but in Jesus. And so if you're trusting the church for salvation, you're never gonna find it. You're never gonna find it because the church can't save you. If you're trusting in a pastor to save you, as much as I wish I could, I can't. Uh, I got too much wrong with me. I promise you, I can't save you. I can't even forgive you of your sins. I can't do anything like that, because I'm just as flawed as you are. If you're looking for, for some author, some, some guru to save you, they can't, because everybody sinned and falls short of God's standards. The only one that can save you is Jesus. The only one that can keep his promises is Jesus. The only one worthy of following is Jesus. This Advent season, trust in Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the faithfulness with which you speak. Father, I thank you that all of your promises are kept and that you are faithful to do exactly what you say you're going to do. Father, we live in a world today that is filled with iniquity and, and evil. We see so much greed and so much sin. We see so much corruption We see people doing wrong and people saying it's right. We see people doing right and people saying that it's wrong. And we even see in the church sin and shortcoming and folly. And so God, all of this just creates a longing in our heart that you would come back and that you would bring with you a righteous rule and reign and that everything that's wrong would be made right. And so God, we long for that. Even as we celebrate Advent and we prepare for, for the celebration of Christmas, the, the call of Advent calls us to look forward. It calls us to look to Jesus' return. That one promise that is still outstanding. 
And God, we long for the day in which you, you satisfy that promise. But in the meantime, Lord, we know that, that there's work to be done. In the meantime, we understand that the, the answer for what ails us is, is the gospel. The answer for the problems that we face today is it's the truth of the gospel. The answer for sin is, is the gospel. The answer for immorality and unrighteousness is, is the gospel. The answer for churches that are struggling is the gospel. The answer for the person who's sitting here today who's filled with doubts and uncertainty, the answer for them is to trust in Jesus. And so God, I pray today that there's any in this room and maybe they're looking for the church to be perfect or they're looking for a pastor to be perfect or they're looking for a person to be perfect. God, that they would stop looking at fallen, imperfect people and start looking to a perfect, sinless Savior who is Christ the Lord. Lord, we are so guilty of breaking our word and breaking our promises. But every one of your promises is yes in Christ Jesus. And so God, may we as followers of you trust you more. And if there's any here today that have yet to give their life to Jesus, that today they would follow Jesus, that they would repent from sin, and they would put their faith and trust in Jesus. God, thank you for your word and for your commitment to your word. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.